This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this first day of September 2023. I'm Philip Nice with our Philadelphia Trumpet writers, Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. Let's start with the Anglo-America region, which is watched closely as it has been since 2017, actually, by Trumpet author Andrew Miller. Andrew, what's the news from America, Britain, and the English-speaking world this week? Well, in weather, a Category 3 hurricane made landfall in Florida, causing millions of dollars in devastation. In finance, a new report revealed that 61% of Americans now live paycheck to paycheck with no savings. And in politics, a YouGov poll revealed that almost half the country has now become convinced that Joe Biden is corrupt. Almost half the country. Well, uh, the other half might might come along at, at some point. It's, uh, it is interesting how early and how consistently the trumpet, and I, and I say this being a staff member of the trumpet, but uh, identify the importance of Barack Obama and his role, the importance of Donald Trump and his role, and the true nature of Joe Biden's uh, presidency. Uh, and and it's kind of that uh, that war inside the the federal government for control over this nation that uh, brings us once again back to the same subject for your main story. Yes, on Thursday, something that used to be shocking and is now routine happened. <laughs> And that's happened is Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to criminal charges that he attempted to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Uh, actually, I think when our uh, next Trump print edition goes to print, I believe that version has a, a sidebar in there uh, detailing the 91 felonies Donald Trump has now been charged with. Uh, this not guilty plea was in relation to the last 13 of those 91 felonies, uh, all of those 13 being related to there was a time period between um, the 2020 presidential election and the January 6th a certification uh, when evidence emerged that there was voter fraud in Georgia and Donald Trump, who was president at the time, made some phone calls to Georgian officials to investigate this before the election was certified. And uh, he's now uh, being charged with, quote, un willingly and knowingly, unquote, attempting to subvert the election. Um, Actually, I think there's even a few lawyers. One lawyer in Florida is even trying to use the fact that he's been charged with willingly and knowingly tried to subvert the election uh, and accuse him of sedition, which would make him ineligible to run for office under Article 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, so some high-stakes stuff here. But uh, one, one uh, in a, apart from all the sedition and treason and 14th Amendment charges, there's also a really interesting case uh, being made on the timing of the trials because he pleaded not guilty but it's like he still has to go to trial and uh, in this case because um, he was being charged by the uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis she's the one who gets to determine like well when are we going to take this to court when's this going to be tried and so she's like I don't know maybe we should do March 4th 
which is one day before Super Tuesday. Uh, our American political routers know that Super Tuesday is there's 14 states that have their Republican primaries. Uh, and oftentimes, whoever wins Super Tuesday statistically usually becomes the Republican nominee. So uh, they're saying, it's like, okay, it's like if, we can, if he wants to be the Republican nominee, uh, assuming we don't bar him from that happening by the 14th Amendment, uh, he's going to have to win the Super Tuesday primaries. So how about the day before Super Tuesday, we have him in court being tried for sedition? Uh, and then you look at these other ones, because this is his third indictment. Uh, he's being prosecuted by the federal prosecutor, Jack Smith, and he wants Trump's third indictment to go to trial on January 2nd, which is about two weeks uh, before the Iowa caucus, which is like the first main primary. It's not Super Tuesday, but it's the first primary of the year. Uh, and so Jack Smith wants him to be <laughs> tried for the January 6th protest right before the Iowa primary. And Fanny Willis wants him to be tried for the Georgia phone call right before Super Tuesday. Uh, and then also actually um, the hush money trial, given the hush money to the pornographic actress. Uh, they want that to uh, be tried on March 25th, which would force his absence from the Delaware primary, the Pennsylvania primary, the Rhode Island primary, and the Wisconsin primary. And so of his four indictments, three of the indictments seem to have been, the trial dates seem to have been specifically chosen um, by judges and prosecutors allied with Barack Obama to make sure that Donald Trump is in court instead of campaigning during the primary season. So it looks here that the uh, district attorney requested that March 4th date and the judge said that the uh, they would indeed begin jury selection on March 4th. So that, that's an official kickoff to, to the trial. You won't see them in the uh, courtroom on that day. I, I heard some people arguing, hey, that's, a, that's his campaign. <laughs> you know, he's campaigning that uh, there, there was election interference and theft. And uh, here they are in the process of the election primaries interfering. <laughs> yeah, I think the New Republic made that case that there's almost like a little bit of reverse psychology going on here because Donald Trump, like I said, one of his indictments is for something he did years ago with um, a pornographic actress. So there's there's elements of his character that uh, conservative evangelical Republicans in under normal circumstances might find off-putting. Uh, but they support him anyway as like the only man with the fighting spirit to take down the deep state. Uh, and so if, you, uh, if you've got someone that people are kind of supporting, in some cases even a little grudgingly, uh, because they can think, take him down the deep state, having the deep state attack him during the primary season, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's like trying to put a fire out by throwing gasoline on it. Right, and, that, and that's one issue that uh, people can, can clearly recognize, and, they'll, and that'll just cement it for people who already see it. But it, it seems to even be moving the needle for people who might not have been voting for Donald Trump uh, prior, uh, just seeing how people who said that he's fighting the deep state or were kind of right, <laughs> you know, that were right about it. So it seems like it might even move the needle for people who aren't already uh, Trump supporters. But uh, we we're, we try to keep our eyes not just on the politics and not uh, uh, make people uh, cause people to think incorrectly that we are pro-Trump per se. Um, 
we try to focus on the larger principles that that are at play here because uh, we're not political analysts. We're not you know um, top level elite journalists or anything like that. What, what we're looking for is how does this prove uh, what the Trump has said in the past in Bible prophecy? Yeah, I think there's two resources I can point people to. Um this week. One article put in the show notes by editor-in-chief is called America's Broken Judgment, which focuses on the prophecy in Micah 3, verses 1 through 3, that says, Hear, O heads of Jacob, and you princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good and who love the evil, who pluck their skin up from them and their flesh from their bones? And so this is like an allegory, almost comparing the court system to like um, cannibals or headhunters or, or something of <laughs> something of that... Um, of that ilk. And you can definitely see this where you've now got like four different indictments, uh, many different courts involved in this, but the court system is all converging on um, destroying Donald Trump primarily for contesting a stolen election, which was really stolen. Um, and then there's also, just more generally, we can put the uh, America Under Attack in the show notes that goes through prophecies in Second Kings 14, verses 26 through 28, about an end-time figure likened to King Jeroboam II who has to fight in war to recover something stolen from him. And we definitely see that, that what was stolen was Trump was the election, and he's, he's fighting to expose that, uh, and he's got a ton of, uh, a ton of prosecutors uh, coming against him. Um, but the, the Bible reveals that he is going to prevail uh, in the end. Uh, and, and for anyone who thinks he's maybe lost his, uh, <laughs> lost his fighting spirit, I've got about a 44-second clip here of him addressing the election fraud himself that we can end my segment of the program with. For the first time in three years, brave American patriots will be able, in court, to show how the presidential election of 2020 was rigged and stolen for those rhinos, radical left Democrats, communists, Marxists, fascists, and others who say, don't look back, look forward. They either do not want to reveal the answers because they got away with murder or are fools and cowards because we know that if we don't find out the reason, it could happen again, and we're not going to let it happen again. All of the fraud, irregularities, and cheating, we cannot ever let a thing like that take place in the United States of America. Thank you very much. You just heard Donald Trump there, a figure that everyone is talking about, everyone is revolving around, everyone is, is supporting or fighting at this point, and a figure that Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry zeroed in on and and stayed zeroed in on, uh, what would that be, Year, years and years ago, soon after he, he won the election, as a, as a person who's, who's prophesied in the Bible. You mentioned a couple of the articles there, America's Broken Judgment, and, uh, well, in the book America Under Attack. And I, as, you were, as you were talking, I was thinking about this, this article the U.S. Constitution is over 95% destroyed. And the quip is, a fanatical statement, question mark. Our founding fathers prophesied it would happen if our, quote, religion and private morality grossly degenerated. That has happened. And you know when that article was written? 2011. And that wasn't the first time that Mr. Flurry uh, made that warning. And at the time, it might have seemed general. Yeah, that we could be better 
at keeping the provisions of the Constitution. But wow, that was probably it was probably exactly 95% destroyed in 2011. And now we are definitely getting past 99%. But that's America's broken judgment. And the, that older article that you might find interesting, the US Constitution is over 95% destroyed. Thank you for covering Anglo-America for us, Andrew Miller. We go now to Richard Palmer, who covers Europe for us. Richard, can you give us an update on the recent events in Europe? Yeah, lots of interesting stories, uh, maybe of a smaller magnitude from Europe this week. You had Pope Francis coming out and uh, praising the Russian czars, people like uh, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great. It's an interesting choice, given that slavery is such a big deal. And, and you know, Peter the Great's signature achievement, St. Petersburg, was built on the back of slaves, quite literally, given that there are slaves as part, you know, their bodies form part of the foundation of that city. But with the war going on between Russia and Ukraine right now, you know, to make these very positive comments about Russia uh, was obviously interpreted in light of that. And so the Russians were very happy and, and, and praised the Pope. The Ukrainians were not. Uh, but clearly, you know, we, we, we've talked a lot on this show about the relationship between Germany and Russia. The Vatican-Russia relationship is an interesting one as well, where there's um, he, there's, there's clearly some push to have some kind of arrangement between the Vatican and, Ro and Russia, and maybe there's been a deal done there already. Denmark is moving to ban Quran burning. This is Quran burning has been a story that's been simmering throughout the summer, where various different annoyed Scandinavians have been uh, making a protest against or a statement against Islam by burning Qurans. Denmark is fed up of the backlash that it's causing. It wants to outlaw the burning of the Quran, but it's, you know, this whole story is part of this growing tension between Europe and the Middle East. Talking of tension between these two regions, France says that it's ready to support military action in Niger. Niger wants to kick out the French ambassador. The French basically came back and said, well, why don't you go ahead and make us? Uh, and they said they stand ready to support any military intervention from any neighboring countries going on into Niger. I'm not sure whether that support extends beyond rhetorical support, uh, but there's definitely kind of the potential for this conflict to widen and France to get more involved in North Africa there. The next print edition of The Trumpet is in the hands of the printer, and your article on Niger is in there. I'd encourage anybody to look for that, uh, to appear on thetrumpet.com. We post that next week. But the power that's trying to project its power into Niger, as you mentioned there, is France. And uh, France has, a, has something else going on back home that you're going to bring us for the main story. Yes, French President Emmanuel Macron had some revealing comments in an exchange with party leaders on Wednesday. He used very crude language that I'm not going to repeat, but uh, he said that France's term limit where presidents can only uh, serve two terms is uh, a load of rubbish would perhaps be a sanitized way of putting it. Quite clearly, he is not happy with the fact that he can only serve two terms in office and would love to continue serving for much longer, maybe even for life if he could. And I think what makes this more worrying is you look at some of his behavior in the past and it has been tending towards the autocratic. We had a story 
during the height of COVID a couple of years ago. Is Emmanuel Macron planning to steal the French election? Talking about ways that it seemed like he was using COVID to rig the vote there. So this is, uh, you know, he's, he, he, he doesn't show any signs of wanting to go anywhere. And maybe we'll see him do the kind of thing that you tend to associate with African presidents or Russian presidents and find a way around that two-term limit. Or French kings. Or French kings. Well, do we associate? I think we associate chopping heads off with French kings probably more than anything else. Uh, they were not interested in term limits. <laughs> right. I'm, yeah, I was going to say, by definition, a king doesn't have a term limit. <laughs> uh, well, that, I mean, that is remarkable, a first world leader to, uh, talking like that. I mean, this is someone who's got considerable power. Um, but the reason I mentioned the, uh, the, what was it called? The ancient regime, the uh, the the French uh, monarchy, is uh, because I remember you and and others talking years and years ago about watch for Europe to turn autocratic, watch for it to turn. Um, you know, it's not truly a democracy. But when you think of the West, if you're not thinking of America, you're thinking of Europe as you know the democracies of of the world that that are holding out against basically the Eastern Hemisphere. But I remember uh, Mr. Fraser, the late uh, trumpet writer, talking about that and watching for an authoritarian turn and and saying that, insisting that under the hood, Europe is not uh, deeply democratic. And if you can, uh, this is just basically like a like a, a signal of that. It's not proof of that, but it's a signal that uh, there is an appetite there for uh autocracy, which could make Europe very powerful and very uh, fearful indeed. And I think this is, it's one of the unseen consequences of what's going on in America. Because really, it's Britain and America that dragged Europe into into being democratic. And a lot of these, well, a lot of these were set up after World War One or World War Two. And when you then have what everyone all around the world really knows is an Obama third term in America. You know, if the shining city on a hill is engaging in these kind of shenanigans, and then if you look at Britain and we just don't really have a leader that can kind of stay in office for more than a year or two or more than a week or two in the case of uh, the former prime minister, Ms. Truss. So... That's not a great that's not a great selling point for democracy. And what you're seeing now is these countries that never really had kind of democracy in their soul in the same way that Britain and America did. I don't think it's that surprising that, okay, well, if America's having a third term, if if you've got a a president in America basically using a puppet to get around the term limits in kind of the same way that Vladimir Putin did with Dmitry Medvedev. Well, no wonder a lot of these countries are trying it as well no wonder democracy is weakening in europe if even if it's weakening in even its biggest champions then no wonder europe is moving away too but like you said this is a story we've been watching for a long time we talk often on this show about you know we're watching for a strong german leader and yes a strong leader in germany is really singled out in bible prophecy but at the same time revelation 17 talks about one strong leader but it also talks about 10 kings so there's going to be 10 more leaders that are ruling in this autocratic fashion. You know, this strongman leadership, it's part of the trend that sweeps the world in kind of the same way that fascism and strongman leadership became a trend that swept the world in World War II. And that you're going to have 
other kings under this German strongman. That is in part the subject of a very recent article from the July Trumpet Print Edition by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. It's called 10 Kings of the New Holy Roman Empire Rising Now. In that article, Mr. Flurry goes through this prophecy, shows how you can even see some of these countries embracing these type of policies right now. France is one of the one of these countries. So you can see this kind of strongman movement rising, not just in Germany, uh, but across Europe. And Emmanuel Macron's comments are certainly a reflection of that spirit. And imagine that type of power and control and dispensing with democracies, uh, strictures on the government, what one king in Europe could do, let alone 10, let alone 10 ruled by an overarching king, a new Holy Roman Empire. I mean, imagine what Europe could do and be uh, if, if it goes that route. Uh, so that article is 10 Kings of the New Holy Roman Empire Rising Now, and that's by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. Our next segment is on the Middle Eastern region. Mihailo Zekic, give us an update of the main stories that have been developing there this week. Yes, yeah, so this might be a bit of stretch on what qualifies as the Middle East, but in Gabon, which is a country in the Congo rainforest in Africa, was ruled by the same dictatorial family for over 50 years. They just had a coup on Wednesday. A lot of Gabonese people are pretty happy that the regime of Ali Bongo is gone. Uh, some people or figures in the West, including French President Emmanuel Macron, aren't. The Africa's obviously had its fair share of coups lately, and we'll watch to see how Europe responds to that, how radical Islam responds to that. Also this week, Papua New Guinea announced they're going to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Papua New Guinea doesn't make the news often, uh, shaking the geopolitical foundations of the earth. But watching which countries do recognize uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital after Donald Trump did so years back is something, of course, we follow up on. And there are protests in Syria that are gaining steam for the last two weeks for obvious reasons. Uh, and by that, I mean Bashar al-Assad and sarin gas attacks. Those usually don't happen. So we'll follow up on those as well if they continue to escalate. So what's your main story from the Middle East or the Middle East uh, extended area? Well, uh, sometimes uh, watching the news, you could see some stories that are pretty funny. I thought this one was on uh, Sunday. Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen announced that negotiations are underway for uh, Libya and Israel to recognize each other. Libya, of course, is an Arab state, has never recognized Israel. And since a law from the 1950s, it's illegal for Libya to recognize Israel. So this was pretty big news, except the fact that Cohen was supposed to keep the talks he was having quiet. Uh, he met, uh, or according to Cohen, he met the Libyan foreign minister in Rome uh, to discuss uh, Israeli investment, potential investment into Libya, Libya protecting Jewish heritage. And once that news came out, the foreign minister of Libya, Najla Mangush, uh, she got fired. Um, not only did she get fired, her own foreign ministry said that nothing of this uh, kind of thing ever happened, that they denounced ties with the Zionist regime, and she actually uh, fled to Turkey out of her own safety. You could look at that and say, okay, the Libyan government didn't know what was going on, but 
According to Libyan sources that spoke with the Associated Press, Libyan Prime Minister Abdulhamid Dabaiba was first approached by the United States back in January. And he liked the idea of normalizing relations with Israel. Dabaiba's government's not an Islamist government. It was helped set up by the United Nations. Libya's, of course, in a pretty bad state financially. Attracting Israeli investment could help ease some of the pain. But he said, according to these um, uh, Libyan sources, that he didn't want the Libyan people to know about this because he Libya normally supports the Palestinians and he didn't know what kind of response he'd get from his own people. And sure enough, when news broke out, uh, Libya did see protests. They weren't particularly big, but people did protest outside of uh, government buildings, outside of the foreign ministry. They set fire to tires and put them on the side of the road. Could have been a lot worse, but I mean, the fact that you think about some of these countries that have that have started relations with with uh, Israel uh, before, like like the United Arab Emirates, like Morocco, etc. There might be plenty of people in those countries that don't like what happened, but they still say, okay, Israel's a normal country. We may not like what Israel does, but we're not going to protest because of this. There's countries like Saudi Arabia, without even uh, setting up deals like this, yet they're openly talking about it. No revolution's happening there. As soon as word of one meeting gets out, basically all of Libya potentially gets set on fire. And because of that law that I mentioned, a law that's lasted through the kingdom of Libya, the Gaddafi dictatorship, the Arab Spring, all these different regimes kept that law. People could look at the Baiba's government as being illegitimate. There's a separate government running the eastern half of Libya. Is he going to take advantage of this? The point of all this being is Libya is in a very, very shaky state. And it seems like the one thing Libyans can agree on, by and large, is that they don't like Israel. Unlike a lot of other Arab countries out there, that's enough to even topple governments potentially. And the reason I picked this as our main story is uh, we talk often on this program about Iran, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and extending its, uh, shall we say, proxy empire, its Islamist puppet states around the world, based off of prophecies in Daniel 11, verses 40 to 43, which speak of Iran under the name of the King of the South. Verse 43 specifies the Libyans will be in this king of the south empire the libyans will become a radical islamist regime the libyans will side with the country that keeps talking about wanting to wipe israel off the map at this point libya i mean it's not israel's best friend but it doesn't particularly want to wipe israel off the map either we can expect a change in libyan politics soon and to change drastically to change aggressively and the sentiment on the ground of the people of Libya, how, how shaky the government of Libya is when topics like Israel come up, demonstrate this. If our listeners would like to learn more about this, we have a booklet called Libya and Ethiopia in Prophecy. Which, uh, there's not too many countries that we have entire booklets focusing on them or on them and a few other neighbors. Libya is one of them. So uh, there's a reason for that. And if our uh, listeners would like to learn more as to why, I'd point them to that. Libya and Ethiopia in prophecy. I can't necessarily keep up with the events you're rattling off, let alone the pronunciations, <laughs> but I see why you're taking us to some of these places each week. Uh, the Trump has been warning about the King of the South for, for 30 years, but I also notice um, that we often warn about the, uh, about the state of Israel and the alliances that it, it is seeking to form and uh, honestly entangling itself in. It, it has... Uh, 
few good options and its relationship with its uh, brother nation, the United States, has been um, problematic, as we've talked about before. But moving on to our, our fourth region, uh, Jeremiah Jacques, you watch Asia, and you've got a couple of uh, updates for us about what's been happening in that half of the world this week. Yes. <clears throat> First of all, Ukrainian forces have penetrated the main Russian defensive line in their country's southeast. This is around the areas of Verbovi and Robotine, and uh, the news is raising hopes of a breakthrough that would kind of you know, reinvigorate this counteroffensive that has so far been very slow moving. Um, and then the Ukrainians also carried out not just a series of drone strikes this week inside of Russia, but also a missile strike inside of Russia using a homemade long-range weapon. So the, uh, the weapons that have been given to Ukraine by the UK and France and the US and others, those all come with stipulations that they cannot be used inside Russia's borders just to try to keep things from escalating too much. And that really limits Ukraine in some significant ways because, you know, many of Russia's logistics hubs are across the border inside Russia proper. But now Ukraine has made its own, you know, Ukrainian-made long-range missiles, and it also has, has drones that are somewhat ironically made largely with uh, Chinese components. But there are no strictures on these things. And so the Ukrainians have carried out a significant attack about 400 miles inside of Russia. And then one of the drone attacks this week also took out several of Russia's Aleutian 76 heavy transport planes in the uh, Skov region. So anyway, the war, the war drags on. The next story here is about cartography, not something that we speak about very often, but the Chinese government just released a new official map delineating all of its claimed territory. The Chinese say that this map is a legal document, and there are plenty of, uh, I guess you could call them expected cartographic encroachments <laughs> on this map. Nearly the entire South China Sea, for example, is marked as Chinese. Taiwan, marked as Chinese. The Senkaku Islands that Japan controls, those are marked as Chinese. Um, a big swath of China's disputed border with India is marked as Chinese. So none of that is too surprising. But what was surprising is that this new map claims a small chunk of Russia as Chinese territory. It's an area that uh, China signed treaties with Russia about decades ago. And at that time, the Chinese, you know, essentially agreed to yield this land to Russia and acknowledge it as Russian. But now the new map by the Ministry of Natural Resources is saying, no, this is Chinese territory after all. So I doubt that very much will come of that in terms of friction between China and Russia, mostly because Russia is not really in a position right now to address this from a position of strength. But, uh, but still, these kinds of territorial claims are important to keep an eye on because they can, they can become serious conflicts. Then just a very quick story here about South Korea. Uh, it's a country we don't speak about as often, but it's in the news this week for a fertility rate that just keeps on falling and falling. And now it is down to 0.7 children per woman. So to even just sustain a population, you need about 2.1 children per woman. Two people make two people, plus a little extra for untimely deaths. Uh, so 2.1 is what you need just to sustain. But now the South Koreans are at less than half of that, 0.7 children per woman. It is true that many wealthier countries have terribly low fertility rates, but this one in South Korea is the lowest on the planet. And it points to some serious demographic and economic problems on the horizon. You're talking about the importance there of family in, in a geopolitical uh, context. Um, 
it makes me think of the story that you and I talked about before the show about this is going to be your main story. And this is something that I honestly, I, I hesitate to bring it up. <laughs> um, it's one of these topics kind of like the, uh, the, the sexual perversion in the West that uh, it's hard to talk about without um, emotion, but it's happening. It needs to be talked about. It's it's ongoing. It's happening right now as you're listening to this show uh, in China. Um, introduce us to that topic, heavy though it may be. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Chinese Secretary General Xi Jinping. He traveled this week to Xinjiang. That's the area in the northwest of China that has had so much bad press over the last few years because Xi Jinping has built a network of facilities there where he has detained more than a million of the region's Muslims, just subjecting them to all kinds of abuses. And it's all for the purpose of really eradicating or at least neutralizing, neutering, you could say, their religion. Um, this region would like to be its own country. You know, it would like to be independent, free from the Chinese Communist Party's yoke. But of course, Xi Jinping and his Chinese Communist Party will not allow that. So instead, they are re-educating the people and getting rid of the ones that cannot be re-educated enough to love the, the party. So it's a horrible situation that has unfolded there with just unspeakable human rights abuses. And it has prompted all kinds of backlash from people around the world. People have said, Xi Jinping, how can you present yourself as a civilized leader when you're committing genocide against some of your own people? So during Xi Jinping's visit this week, he finally answered all that criticism. But the answer was not what Westerners had hoped for, because he said basically that the repression that he has orchestrated so far has not been enough. And now he's planning to double down on it. His words were... Xinjiang still has outstanding stability problems. We have to combine the anti-terrorism and anti-successionist struggle with the legalized efforts for stability maintenance. The Sinification of Islam should be deepened in order to effectively handle all sorts of illegal religious activities. We will build a beautiful Xinjiang. End quote. So the Sinification of Islam, that's what he's calling it. Make it a CCP-approved version of this religion, just like the CCP has done with Catholicism and, and some branches of Protestantism within its borders. So for those who were hoping that Xi Jinping might apologize for what has been done to the Uyghurs or soften his policies, his visit this week would have been a sore disappointment because he says no. If anything, we have been too soft. We are now doubling down in order to fully crush these people and make them bow to us. What does the Chinese Communist Party regime that is often praised here in the West, uh, what does that regime do when it is signifying Uyghurs? Yeah, well, in the region in general, They've transformed it into one of the most strictly controlled surveillance states in the world. Uyghurs are now surrounded by hundreds of thousands of security checkpoints and cameras that are ubiquitous. So it's really 1984 there, but far more disturbing than just the general region are the hundreds of facilities that the Chinese 
very euphemistically call vocational training facilities. Um, in reality, these are concentration camps. And the Chinese send Uyghur Muslims into these places, any Uyghur who they think is too serious about his or her religion. And inside, Chinese agents use psychological and physical force to indoctrinate these people. Basically, they make them denounce their ethnic and religious identity and to instead embrace the Chinese state. Um, it's well documented that the Chinese use starvation, extreme sleep deprivation. They force them to eat pork and, and things like that, and they won't let them pray, um, just things that specifically violate their religion. The women in the camps are often forced to take medications that render them infertile. So the ones that you know the Chinese Communist Party deems as too Islamist are stripped of their ability to to reproduce. So um, there's also plenty of evidence of various forms of sexual violence, including rape. And if any of the detainees resist the indoctrination or the abuse, Chinese prison guards can label them as incorrigible and can kill them and can harvest their organs for resell. Um, these are halal organs, you could say. These people have mostly never eaten pork, so they go for a high premium to wealthy Muslims in other countries. So it all sounds like a uh, horror movie levels of nightmare but but the evidence that this is happening is out there in abundance and it's a true horror for those experiencing it this is happening fellow human beings concentration camps and crushing human minds and crushing human spirit and taking fathers from their families and putting other men into those homes into those bedrooms and cutting out human organs for profit this is not just the history books. This is not just some movie. There is something anti-human happening, and it is happening now in our world on our watch. Yes, that's right. This this is, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, it feels like some kind of a, a nightmare, but, but it is really going on. And Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote a powerful article in our uh, February 2020 issue. It's called The Climax of Man's Rule Over Man. And this article is built around a prophecy in the Bible that says the world will enter into an era called the times of the Gentiles just before the end of the age of, of man's attempts at ruling himself. And he talks about how you know, American and British leadership for many years was, on the whole, a positive force for the world. It brought a great deal of stability and opportunity to billions. Those countries had biblically influenced beliefs in, you know, the, the God-given rights of individuals, the rule of law, the injustice of government tyranny. So they did bring a lot of stability to many peoples and nations around the world. But that era is now coming to an end, and the times of the Gentiles is beginning. And in this new era, ruthless governments, like the one that we see in China, will grow more and more powerful and more and more determined to extend their power over more people. Uh, Mr. Fleury actually specifically mentions Xinjiang, China, in this article, and he says that all those unspeakable atrocities happening there are an indication of just how dark the times of the Gentiles will be. So that kind of, of uh, ruthlessness and barbarity will soon be happening worldwide. So it's a, it's a very important article. I would just briefly mention that the Uyghurs, in their quest to get free of the Chinese rule, they have staged some terrible attacks against government forces. So you can see that it's a, it's a complex uh, 
you know, situation in some ways, but nevertheless, that's, that doesn't even begin to excuse the genocidal response that, that China came back at them with. So anyway, this, this article, the climax of man's rule over man really puts this in a, in a context that I think would be helpful for any listener who would like to better understand it. That's right. The context, the, the climax of man's rule over man in that previous issue of the trumpet. And then in the next issue of the trumpet, um, the editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, he revisits this this overall context, this overall idea of man ruling over man. I mean, this is the Chinese Communist Party. So whenever you see Chinese Communist Party, whenever you see China in the news, these are the people, this is what's happening, this is what they're doing. Meanwhile, as, as we're, you know, uh, treating with them in international relations or what, whatever, that's, that's what they're doing. Uh, but this is not just the Chinese Communist Party. This is human beings leading other human beings without any uh, intervention or history for, with with God. This is what human beings do. It's not just you know the Chinese or even the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, this we are living in the climax of man's rule over man. And look at it. I mean, look at what we're doing. And and look at what the Uyghurs have done. You know, they've done some terrible, awful, horrible uh, Islamic terrorism things. Uh, to uh, to other human beings, the next issue of the Trump addresses that. Uh, Editor in Chief Gerald Fleury addresses that, and he talks about how uh, God is pointing us to how human beings lead each other uh, with what uh, one human leader experienced having a beast's heart. It's beastly what's happening out there. So, uh, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Trumpet at thetrumpet.com. Up ahead, our last segment a roundtable discussion with all of our panelists. Please stay with us. And to be Hungarians is, is very, we are very proud of it. We love the nation, we love the country, so, and we are proud of it. Uh, it. It's not very much mainstream thinking, political thinking of today Western uh, societies, but in Hungary we are still very patriotic and uh, Christian and committed to that values. Not in an ideological level, but on the streets every day. Welcome back, Trumpet Hour listeners, to our final segment this hour. We are completing the week in review. We just heard a news clip from earlier this week. Mihailo Zekic, this is what caught your eye or your ear. Explain to us what we just heard and why it's important. Yes, that was Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. He was giving an interview with Tucker Carlson, which was posted on what used to be known as Twitter, uh, now known as X, on Tuesday. Tucker obviously has been trying to... uh, since he got kicked off of Fox News, keep his um, media career going, and that includes exclusive interviews with figures like uh, Donald Trump and now Viktor Orban in Budapest. The interview is an interesting one in a number of respects. For one, you think about some of this independent right-wing media, and they're uh, rallying around ideas of freedom and government uh, transparency and the power of the people. Uh, A lot of those ideals Orban is exactly the opposite of. 
He is Hungary's longest serving prime minister. And since he last got into uh, power in 2010, uh, he's been uh, in and out a couple of times. He uh, has basically transformed Hungary into a, a hybrid democracy, shall we say. Um, in, independent media outlets have been uh, shut down or pressured to to be quiet through various means. Elections have been manipulated. Uh, the, the kind of things you, you sort of expect from third world dictatorships. Uh, but a lot of uh, people, inclu including Mr. Carlson, apparently actually look up to Viktor Orban because he's also very patriotic. He's very unashamed of his country's uh, uh, Christian, shall we say, heritage. Uh, he's very unashamed of uh, of national culture, and when you look at the culture wars going on in the in places like the United States, it's easy for uh, someone who has conservative leanings to look on that and going, "Yeah, we need some of that over here." So that's one aspect, and the other aspect is a lot of these things that I mentioned about Orban, about how he uh, he he lied about them basically on camera, and for whatever reason. Mr. Carlson seemed to help him out with some of those lies. He mentioned, while asking Orban questions, he mentioned statements like, Hungary has a free media, freer than the United States. Uh, your last election, you want it fair and square. Uh, I won't take the time to give a 30-minute polemic about all those aspects, but there's pretty d easily proven material out there showing that his last election, which was last year, there was a lot of been electoral manipulating, including like giving the opposition candidate one moment, three weeks before the vote to speak on government state TV, on using, on banning political advertising, by using government public notices to advertise his own electoral campaign about journalists who've had their lives ruined, whether by being blacklisted from getting any uh, any financing or even having salacious rumors come out and destroy people's reputation. Uh, a lot of that, if you listen to what Orban talking, you, you'd, you'd think none of that was going on in Hungary. You'd think Hungary is the freest country in Europe. But this, this interview that put out is a huge propaganda boon for Orban, especially for people listening in the United States. Yeah, I think a couple of things stood out to me from the interview. I think the second is what Simon mentioned. The first is I thought the beginnings was, were just, you know, Tucker Carlson reaches a mass, a mass audience and reaches an audience that's not reading geopolitical monographs and, and things like that. And I thought Auburn gave just an excellent, concise, uh, lesson in how to understand Russia and how Central Europe sees Russia and has seen Russia for the past 80 years. You, you, you can, it, I think we had that reader that we discussed last week who kind of accused us of saying that uh, Ukraine is winning the war, which I think you know, we, live in a, we live in an area where you have media is very, very, they're in two different camps. And if you're not in either of those camps, people still mentally try to put you in one of those camps. They have a hard time understanding that you're not cheering for this side or the other side. And so when it comes for, to Ukraine, you know, I think we have actually been saying, no, Russia has tremendous resources. Don't expect this to be a massive Ukrainian victory. Ukraine is doing a lot better than we expected, yes. Um, but they're not on the brink of be beating Putin. And Viktor Orban said some of these things as well. Look, Putin's not going anywhere. And I think you know, his country has been criticized for the way that they've cozied up to Putin. And I certainly sympathize with a lot of that criticism. 
But when you hear him speak, you can understand why. As he said in that interview, you know, Russia is close, America is far. And fundamentally, his position is when push comes to shove, he does not trust America to defend himself. He believes in the long run he's going to have to accommodate Russia in some form. He's not ideologically pro-Russian. He's just being pragmatic about it. And the sooner he kind of makes comes to that accommodation, the better terms he's going to get. And I think this is the dynamic that we're seeing across all of Europe as a whole. And their drawing closer to Russia is in large part a function of America's unreliability. It's a function of things like America's withdrawal from Afghanistan and this view that you might get some temporary support from America for a while. But if you found your defense on America, it's going to come crashing down around you at some point. Putin's a bad guy. Russia's done lots of bad things. We can't defend ourselves against Russia. America won't defend us against Russia. So let's not poke the bear. And I think that is uh, the kind of the analysis that, that came out during the first few minutes of that video. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of that in there. Um, but also at one point, Orban spoke a little bit about the upcoming election in the U.S. And he said the answer to many of the world's problems would be the return of Donald Trump. His quote there was, the best foreign policy of the recent several decades belongs to him, to Trump. He did not initiate any new war. He treated nicely the North Koreans and Russia and even the Chinese. Trump is the man who can save the Western world and all of humanity. End quote. So, you know, quite a resounding endorsement for Trump from Hungarian dictator Orban there. And I think that in Russia and China right now, there is some hope that Trump will return. The uh, the Wall Street Journal talked about this this week, saying Beijing and Moscow see potential benefits from Trump, whom they view as a transactional leader who might be willing to strike deals to ease tensions in hot spots such as Ukraine and Taiwan. Um, and it is true that when Trump was in power, the U.S.'s foreign policy was better in some notable ways for China and Russia. Tr- Trump really despised the alliance structure that his predecessors in the White House spent decades painstakingly building. He he didn't seem to understand that maintaining peace is very expensive. So he told the Japanese and he told the South Koreans that he might take the U.S. bases and troops out of their countries unless they gave America more. That was probably the best news China could have hoped to hear. And then there was often kind of a transactional foundation to Trump's discussions of Taiwan. He seemed to view it as a bargaining chip that he might be able to use to get better trade deals with China. So that was, of course, horrifying to the Taiwanese, who are a thriving democracy and who are terrified of being thrown under that Chinese Communist Party's rule that we spoke about last half that's just so rude. Uh, But it was a stance that the Chinese welcomed. And then Trump is also on record saying that Ukraine should surrender some territory to Russia in order to have some peace. So you can see why Orban thinks that Trump could bring peace to the world. I, I think if Trump were in power and made some deals like that with Russia and China, it would bring some peace. But the trouble is, it would be a terribly temporary peace, very short term, and it would be created on terms that actually emboldened the Chinese and the Russians and showed them that aggression and illegal expansion and living the way of Git are the way to go. And so it would prompt them in the longer term to just take more and more. So let me ask you this. Are we pro-Orban? Are we pro-Russia? Or are we pro-Ukraine? Or are we pro 
America, what's what's our uh, angle here? What's our what are we trying to accomplish? We're pro Britain, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I vote for there is no hope in man. I I say that what you pointed us to just in that last segment, Jeremiah Jacques, is what we're discussing here: the climax of man's rule over man, even America and even Britain <laughs> have such ugliness to be exposed such uh hypocrisy to be exposed that is being exposed and this is the climax of man's rule over man where men are doing horrible things to each other there's there's hypocrisy there's you know you turn to one place thinking it's the last hope and even it's hypocritical even it has a uh uh underlying you know agenda or what have you um i think that that's the lesson that we can learn from the Uyghurs and and the uh, Chinese Communist Party. That's the lesson we can learn from the cor- absolutely awful corruption uh, inside the American government and its its horrible dealings with with our our allies and horrible dealings with our enemies. Um, I think I think that's what we're seeing here, and I and I hope that that comes across. When we are identifying certain things happening in Ukraine, happening in Russia, happening in uh, Xinjiang, happening wherever we are, um, it's like I told uh, some of the speech college students when we were having debates yesterday. It's the principle uh, because we we picked some some um, controversial topics so so you could have a debate, so you can have two sides to it. And it was surprising how easy it is to slip into, like Mr. Palmer was talking about, like a, a pre-packaged political set of of ideas. Trump at has the luxury of 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 not having to do that and to just focus on the principle, which is uh, how these things uh, reveal the 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 unfolding of Bible prophecy and how they're caused by how people live their lives, how how the pe- the principles that people live by. Uh, this is the climax of man's rule over man. So, dear listener, what is it that Trumpet Hour is trying to do here? I mean, this whole discussion gets to the very heart and core of everything that the, the trumpet is doing. I think to bring this back to what Simon was talking about, you know, well, like Jeremiah, so some people are looking to Donald Trump for the for for answers for this world's problems. As uh, Victor Orban and others in Europe rise. You can see people looking to them and Americans looking to them and saying, well, this is fantastic. This is kind of the European branch of the Trump movement and cheering for for them to rise. And Bible prophecy tells us that's not going to be the case and that actually even Donald Trump is not going to bring a permanent solution to to America, that there's a temporary resurgence. He's not going to fix all of our problems. And so really at the heart, and well, this is what uh, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote in his book, Daniel Unlocks Revelation. He said, God is teaching men even as they rebel. They are learning that man cannot rule himself. Only God can bring men peace, prosperity, happiness, and joy. And he called this lesson that you know, God rules and that man cannot rule the greatest lesson mankind could possibly learn. And so you, know, you look at Victor Orban, you look at the all of the false places that we put our hope in and the different countries that we could put our hope in and Britain or America or Russia or Donald Trump or Barack Obama. You know, it's all going to fail ultimately. 
And the lesson from that is that man cannot rule man, and we need to look to God to rule man. And all of Bible prophecy is pointing us to God, pointing us to that relationship that God wants to have with mankind. And once we've learned that lesson, then we can mankind can have that wonderful relationship with him. And that is what we are trying to do here at Trumpet Hour. That is all the time we have for this edition of Trumpet Hour. We always appreciate you emailing us your thoughts. That email address, again, is letters at thetrumpet.com. We appreciate everyone who's been taking advantage of that. We thank our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. We thank Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz for engineering and production. And we thank you for listening to The Week in Review, and we look forward to being back with you next week on Trumpet Hour.